Welcome to Rising Tide Startups, where today's most exciting solopreneurs share their startup stories. They also deliver tangible strategies that they would implement personally if starting their business over today. Each episode is a startup masterclass. Make sure you take notes. Take it away, Kevin. This is Kevin Pruitt with another episode of Rising Tide Startups, and my guest today is David Wax. David, thanks for joining us on Rising Tide. Thank you, Kevin. This is super cool to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity. I uh, off camera, I asked him what that beautiful city was over his over his shoulder out the window there, and he said that beautiful city is well. He said, I don't know about beautiful. He did say it's Phoenix, Arizona. So we're, he's calling me from the other side of the of the country here. But David, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Sure, um, I am a two time, well, I mean maybe three or four, but two time real entrepreneur. My first company I started back in 2004, it was a company called Sell It. It was in the text messaging space, <clears throat> sold that in 2010 uh, and kept working for the new owners of the company until 2012. We were sending about a million text messages a day. Wow. And yeah, it got pretty big. And then I turned around pretty much the next day and I decided, well, I had done one side of the coin. I had done short, fast messages that got quickly read and quickly forgotten. <laughs> so let me do slow longer messages that get slowly read and slowly forgotten. And so that's how I started handwritten, which is what I do today. And now handwritten, I've been doing handwritten for seven years. Um, we are, I believe, the largest provider of handwritten notes in the world. Um, the way we do this is we use robots. So we actually build robots here in our facility in Phoenix. Each robot holds a pen and it writes out your notes in a pilot G2 PowerPoint pen like you would. So uh, yeah, that's kind of me. Um, before that, before starting the last startup in this one, um, I kind of always thought I'd be an entrepreneur. So when I went to college, I studied um, engineering on one side and business on the other, entrepreneurial management on the other. And then the engineering I chose was computer software engineering, mm. not because, I mean, I, I was always a computer geek, I'm not gonna lie. But thinking about, okay, do I want to do civil engineering or electrical or mechanical? No, I wanted to do software. You know, uh, I was, I guess, thinking ahead because um, I thought it would be cheaper to start a software company than a hardware company. So that's literally the reason why I ended up doing a software and an uh, entrepreneurship background. And here I am. So out of university into your first uh, entrepreneurial gig, how long was that gap? And, and did you just like, I left in university one day and said, you know, let's get into text messaging. Yeah. So <laughs> this is, an, so I uh, graduated in the go-go 2000. So right before the dot-com bust um, for your listeners that are old enough to remember, this dot-com bubble was hot mm -hmm. in 1999. And then I came out of school in 2000 and the bubble burst. Uh, but prior to the bubble bursting, I got a job. I had a couple different offers um, uh, out of school, which was nice. And the one I went with was a consulting firm that was helping large businesses try to be like .com. So we were helping like major mall groups compete with Amazon um, or, I mean, just that was kind of the idea is like get these big companies to be nimble like dot coms because my thought was if i'm going to start my own company i should go try it out a few times on somebody else's dime 
Sure. It might have been better for me to go to work for a .com because mm -hmm. becoming a consultant and then flying all over the country and then sitting in a, a windowless room for for months on end writing up some presentation that nobody ever looks at wasn't the same thing as working in a uh, startup. But I did that. And then um, I left there and I went into private equity or uh, investment banking. I was an equity anal analyst for Credit Suisse First Boston. And I always wanted to get into venture capital too. So I applied to this job in San Diego. Um, they actually gave it to me, but I was weirded out by the company. I kind of had this gut feeling. It was weird. A year later, they emailed me out of the blue and they said, we wish you'd reconsider. And that should have been a warning sign. First of all, who doesn't want to move to San Diego? The best, quote unquote, the best weather in the country. Second of all, work for a venture capital firm, which is like the greatest. A lot of people consider that the best type of job ever if you're, if that's your, if that's type of your, your jam. So I reconsidered, even though I shouldn't have, I should have seen the, the writing. Uh, and I moved out to San Diego and uh, it was a total nightmare. <laughs> Mm -hmm. The company was a nightmare. Um, they had my office bugged. Um, they gave me menial tasks to do. You know, I had worked as a consultant for a number of years. I worked as an investment banker for a year. And then they gave me this menial task, like moving truck tires around because the head venture capitalist was also um, very eccentric and a compulsive buyer. And he'd buy all this junk and he wanted his analyst to, to organize it. So I would do all that. And um, in that time, I got um, in a car accident, ruined my brand new car or used car, but new to me. Um, I got fired from that job because the guy was crazy and he fired me without cause. I got evicted from my apartment and it stormed like Noah's Ark's flood um, so bad that it, they were sandbagging up San Diego. And again, San Diego, best weather in the country when I was there, sandbags and eviction and being fired. And it actually worked out because uh, when I got fired, I didn't have any money. So getting evicted was a good thing because I could break my lease. So the whole thing was just <laughs> bonkers. It was four months of just bonkers town. And I ended up being, I was broke because my prior jobs, I'd made good money for my age, but I'd used all my money to pay down my school debt. Um, and so at that age, I was pretty school debt free at that point, but I had zero rainy day fund. Um, so I kind of left San Diego with my head between my legs and returned to Phoenix where I grew up. And I was talking with my father, who's a realtor. Um, and I said, you know, I don't even know what to do. And he said, well, I drive by these houses and there's always an empty flyer box. Can't you do something with barcodes and Blackberries to provide information on houses? And this was before the iPhone. This was a mm -hmm. solid four or five years before the iPhone. Yeah. So there were Blackberries. And I said, I don't know about Blackberries. I don't know about barcodes, but why not text in? Why not say text house one, two, three to this number to get info on the house. And when you do that, you get the info on the house, but then the realtor also gets you as a lead so they Absolutely. can follow up with you. Absolutely. Um, thinking not that you're going to buy this house, but if you're driving around texting codes off signs, you're probably in the market for a house. I'll sell you something else. Mm. Um, so that's what started my professional career as being an entrepreneur is that was a product called house for sale. Um, but I knew I wanted to be bigger than real estate. So I named the company sell it. Uh, 
C-E-L-L-I-T. Um, and at the same time as starting House for Sale, it was classic, you know, entrepreneurs, you know, computer nerds sitting in a room with a two liter bottle of Diet Mountain Dew programming all night and typing furiously and all that. I thought it was going to be a monster drink or something. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't think we had monster drink back then. Or something. Yeah, this was 2004. So, so um, I was sitting there pounding the Mountain Dew and programming and um, visiting my girlfriend who is still back in Chicago, um, where I was before the venture capital firm. And um, I drive, I go to Chicago and I'd walk up the street when I'd get off the train to her house and I'd see all these bars. Um, so I thought, why not create a system that allows bars to offer text messages um, like, hey, drink specials, come in, mm. you know, two for one, that type of thing. So that became the second product for Sell It, which was text messaging, um, outbound text, not responsive text in front on something, get it back, but really an outbound blast system. That was called Coupons App. And then what happened was the first, um, we went to real estate trade shows and I realized how hard it is to deal with realtors, which you know might best be told over beers. <laughs> um, and then I came back and I was working on Coupons App more because I hated dealing with realtors. And I got a call from Marie Claire Magazine who saw one of my ads on Google. And Marie Claire wanted a system to allow people to text in for information on products in their magazine. And this is 2004 again, so this is early days. So I said, well, yeah, we could create a system where you not only get information on the product, you get photos of the products and they loved it. And then what did I do? I, took, I turned around, took House for Sale, my real estate platform and applied it to just general text for info. Um, so House for Sale, which had a $24.99 subscription price became you know, an $8,000 or $5,000 product for Marie Claire Magazine. They repeated this multiple times and it allowed me to move back to Chicago to be with my girlfriend. Coupons app, which was for small restaurants and bars, um, pretty soon we had Abercrombie and & Fitch and Toys R Us and Sam's Club. And we, we became the, one of the largest provider of mobile CRM. So customer relationship management mm -hmm. using coupons app, which we renamed Sell It Studio. So between the two products, neither one ended up where I thought it would be, but it ended up in a much better spot. Right. Um, and then uh, in 2010, I sold the company to this company called ePrize, which itself was going to get acquired. And they used hand uh, sell it as the icing or the cherry on the cake for the acquisition and worked for them for two years, which was very difficult. And I could talk about that to your uh, listeners about how difficult it is to work for somebody and then uh, or, or sorry to sell your company and work for somebody I should say and then the next day I turned around after that earnout was up um, the next day I turned around and I started handwritten um, and the idea with handwritten was I saw that um, texting and email and tweets and slack and all these electronic forms of communication were just becoming noise and what really stood out when I walked into my office, when I walked into my salespeople's offices, uh, whatever, I saw people's handwritten notes, not only read and opened, but on display in the office, standing on the desk, on the bookshelf, pinned to a, a pegboard um, at home, you know, stuck to a refrigerator. And I thought, what if we can make sending a handwritten note as easy as sending an e email? And that's what handwritten is today. So 
the basic idea, do I get to choose like what the script looks like, or is it programmed based on my handwriting or what's the, what's the basic model behind the, the card? You said it's a, it's a virtually a robot with a pen. Mm -hmm. So what's the, what's the kind of the, the, the magic behind the, the scenes here? Well, there's a lot. It's way more complicated than sell it. But on the, what you're talking about, we had to develop our own font engine due to the intricacies of what a font is. Uh, but we developed our own font engine um, and we have 25 available handwriting styles on the mm, website. Yeah. So ranging from cursive to messy to block to small caps, whatever. And then um, in addition to that, we've got probably 200 custom handwriting styles that are for individuals that ask for it. So if you, Kevin, want to, you know, if you were dead set on writing in your handwriting, we'd have you fill out a bunch of worksheets and write a bunch of sample writing. And then we take that, translate that into a private handwriting style that's available to you and you only. Wow. Um, and we have this, we have one client, a woman, a uh, very wealthy woman, because it's, this is not cheap to do. It, it takes a whole week of my um, graphic designer's time to create one font. And she's replicating the handwritings of her children at different phases in their life. First, they were like four years old and she took, she got samples of that and then six years old. I don't know why she's doing this, but God bless her. Um, so she's having them, I guess, send out thank you notes after birthday parties and stuff like that in their handwriting. Um, I, not asking them to write out notes, but having them do the worksheets, which is funny. Um, so yeah, so we have a bunch of those. We have some um, business executives, like heads of corporations and stuff that use us, and then every, everyday Joes that really like um, writing in their own handwriting. Right. I want to I want to camp on something you were talking about earlier before I kind of head into the really kind of the the story or the process or the business model behind handwritten, but. You, you touched on something that is really interesting because it does come up from time to time. Like when you exit, you know, the, the transition yeah. period, like the, you know, part of the exit agreement is that you're going to stay on for 18 months. You're going to stay yeah. on for three years or whatever. It's interesting because some people are like going, that was the best time of my life because kind of the pressure was off. I knew there was a, an end date, you know, yeah. but there, most people are like you, they're like going, you know, that I was a miserable experience. I mean, horrible, you know, so what was the, what was kind of just kind of walk us through that time and the things that were really the most pressing on you. So it's funny. Is that, so um, I was just um, eating dinner at a restaurant um, and we started talking with the table next to us and the guy over there had started a, um, a company as well, sold it. And I said, wasn't that rough selling? And he said, yeah. Um, and it, it was dark days. I uh, made some decisions that were bad decisions personally during it. And, and all that, but basically the gist of it is I had spent seven or eight years rebuilding a gorgeous 1962 vet, cherry red vet, right? With the porthole and just gorgeous vet. And then I put it up for sale. And when you know it, the person that buys it is your next door neighbor. And they take that cherry red vet and they stick it on their um, driveway, not in their garage, but on their driveway. So you have to see it and experience it every day. And then you see them quote unquote, fix it, which means taking a belt sander to it and just belt sanding the heck out of it. That's, that's what it's like to be in a company that you no longer own because they start making stupid decisions. 
Um, you see all your employees leave. Mm -hmm. There's a lot. So there's the stupid decisions because nobody's going to run the company as good as you. Um, people leave because there's this, at least in this example uh, of mine, this um, uh, to territorialism of accounts. So for example, we had Abercrombie and Fitch as our account. Hello World had Abercrombie and Fitch as their account. For them, it was way smaller. Um, they were not doing as much business as we were, but oh, we're Hello World, we own you now. The sales rep that owned the Abercrombie and Fitch account snapped it up from my sales rep who had the much larger Abercrombie and Fitch account. And this just caused angina, like you've never heard to me and to my staff and my staff left. Um, there was just a lot of that going on. And if you don't know, if you don't mentally prepare for SHIT to hit the fan, when you sell your company, you're going to be in a bad spot. Um, you know, one day I plan on selling handwritten. I'm not going to do it for a couple of years. Quite frankly, it's several reasons. Number one reason I'm having way too much fun. Yep. But um, when I do, I'm going to have already curled my toes in my shoes. And I will know I got to just, A, try to minimize the earnout period, the, the lockup period mm -hmm. as short as I possibly can. Uh, number one, I got to, I want to do that. But number two, in the earnout period, just get through it and, and clench your toes and because it sucks. And it's, it's weird because you can't, unless you're in some sort of very unique business networking group, like, um, I don't know, EO or something like that. Uh, it's funny, I joined EO like two months before selling hand, uh, sell it. And they kicked me out because once you don't own a company anymore, mm -hmm you're no longer an entrepreneur and you're not a part of the company. So you don't, so going through the process of selling can be extremely lonely because your friends are like, what are you bitching about? You just made a crap ton of money. Stop your whining. But what they don't realize is the emotional connection you've had over the last, you know, you turn nothing into something. You turn literally nothing into a business that employs 30 people and has you know millions in revenue, blah, 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 blah. That's my product. Like some people paint a painting, some yep. people, you know, that's my product is building this company. And then you sell it and the person that takes it, you know, pisses all over it. It's right. It's just right. hard. It's hard. I I mean, I I fully understand. I I um and it's it's interesting that the different agreements that you know people that have sold their companies have. I mean. Um, I have I have heard of stories where literally you are allowed to continue to run it just exactly like you were running it before. You know, you have a 24 month window or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, before real transition happens, I mean, they, they wanted not only to buy the company, they wanted to buy the company and how you ran it. Yeah. You yeah. know, not just the not just the stock, you know, so to speak, or the IP. But um, yeah, it is interesting to hear the story because, you know, your, your next exit may be completely different. I mean, you know, yeah. you, you may have, I mean, lessons learned, even, even lessons you learned, like how to handle things better, you know, what you can apply in this, this new situation. But. Yeah. You know, it's all about incentives too. So with us, it was a two-year earnout, and the first year was performance-based on profit. And the second year was just stick with the company for a year and transition it. And with the uh, profit, I knew that I should stop investing in advertising 
about six months before the end of the year, because there's no way I'm going to see return on investment on that advertising to cover the cost of the advertising. So I, I was no longer doing what was in the best interest of, the, of my acquirer. I was doing what was in the best interest of my pocket, you mm. know, and those are the incentives they set up. I became playing the game. So um, I kind of hurt my own company a little bit because I didn't want to, I, you know, I cut back investment. Yeah. Um, and then the second year I was a, I was a lame duck. Mm -hmm. I was put in an office, had, I was given a title that was BS and I had no, nobody reporting to me. I, I felt stupid going in the office because, you know, I didn't do anything. So it was weird. Um, but uh, I just kind of grinned and bared it through the, the second half of, of the year now. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's weird because you don't, you know, you don't have too many people you can talk to this stuff about. Let's drill down a little bit just on handwritten itself. So kind of walk me through just starting the company and, and, you know, what, uh, I'm, I'm not talking about dollars here, but like what kind of investment did you, did you put in the, to make this work? Did you program this? Did you hire programmers? Did you, you know, was this, was this, I guess, created on the back of sell it, you know, on the, on the, you know, the windfall of sell it created handwritten. And yeah. Um, so what was the, what was kind of the transition there? So both companies, I've, I pretty much self-funded, um, handwritten was not as like with sell it. I had to have not, I had a moonlight and work for other people when I was starting it. And cause I, I just, I needed money, but then with handwritten, I had, I, I had the luxury of money to invest in it. <clears throat> I, from a, how I got it up and running is I bought two off the shelf auto pens, which you can buy from a company in Virginia. And they write out your, um, they have a kind of a crude version of what we do. Our writing is much better. The machines are much more maintainable and um, scalable. I could get into all that. It's probably not that interesting, but I, I had those machines started with two, ended up with about 20, maybe 20 and change. And then um, dealing with the company that made those machines, it was, they were very, very hard to deal with that company. The machines were not reliable. I couldn't buy as many machines as I wanted to. They just wouldn't sell them to me. They had some weird licensing where they, they couldn't sell me enough machines. And so I said, screw it, I gotta invent my own robot. And it took two or three years, um, but now we have it and we've got 115 of them currently. Um, they are absolute best of class. I've got two full-time engineers right now that just improve upon them, repair them, um, build new ones. Um, that's been very, very interesting because with that, what I did was it, we had a couple of false starts, but in the end, I hired an engineering company out of Mesa, Arizona, right down the street, and they came up with a prototype hardware design. I wrote the software and made decisions as far as the electronic components and stuff like that, but they made the, the metal pieces. And then I brought it in house. I, I hired a kid out of ASU. I told him, um, Arizona State University, I told him this would be the greatest job you'll ever have. He didn't believe me. And then he did. Um, because what he did was he was given the job of taking one machine that we had built with the company in Mesa and then scaling that and building more and more and more of them. The Mesa company gave me a metal design. When this kid came in, he said, you know, a lot of this could be 3D printed, starting with this metal box that hung off the front of the machine that had all the electronic components and a touch screen on it. 
He said, that box costs you $400. I said, I'm well aware of that. He said, I could 3D print that box for $7. And I said, well, how much is the 3D printer you'd use? He goes, $400. I'm like, get me, get me one of those and start it. So winner, uh, winner, chicken dinner here. Exactly. So, so we started with that off the shelf 3D printer. That machine was not the right choice. That was a um, prototype grade, something you'd buy to make little models or yeah. or whatever. It was not engineering grade, but we got the taste for 3D printing and then started, uh, we upgraded to Mark Forge 3D printers, which are best of, I mean, they're $15,000 each. We've got four of them. Um, you know, we've got very, very high end 3D printers and we started 3D printing everything. So we got rid of all this metal. Um, and why that was cool was when we'd order parts for the robot, I'd have to go to a CNC shop that would mill this out of metal. And the only way to get the cost down was to order parts for like 20 machines at a time. Yep which is very expensive right? Uh, and also very risky because if you screw it up, now you have spent all this money on parts that are worthless. But with a 3D printer, we could kind of be more like a sculptor and like mm -hmm. shave a little off this, see if it works better, shave a little off that. It, it, and also just uh, do it all in-house much quicker. Um, eventually, we were 3D printing stuff that really didn't need to be 3D printed, um, like big flat pieces and it's called a 3D printer, not a 2D printer, right? Like, so a big flat piece is relatively 2D and um, it would just take forever to make these parts. Um, and we had a bunch of parts that were 2, 2D and it would take about a week and a half to 3D print those parts. And we were experimenting with all sorts of ways to do it. And in the end, I said, why not get a laser cutter and just cut it out of plastic? So we cut it out of plastic, it moved from which by the way, that machine also cost 15 grand. Everything costs 15 grand for whatever reason. But um, when we moved from a week and a half to the laser cutter, it went from a week and a half to 15 minutes and better quality flat parts. So it's just been really interesting to design for manufacturability, to choosing the right additive manufacturing, subtractive manufacturing, all these things I didn't know anything about. You know, I'm a software dude. Yep. So it's just been a really interesting process, figuring out how we're going to build these machines and make them better and program them and all the rest and the software to maintain hundred, you know, when you have one machine and you want to change the code on it, it's pretty easy. When you have 115 and you want to push out software updates, it's totally different. So yep. all that type of geeky stuff, I love, I just, it's fun. So that's been, I, I don't even know what question I'm answering with you, but uh, that's been really fun. Well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you know, I, I talk to people all over the world and, and, you know, you can recount their history. I mean, very few things are wasted. And so, I mean, I can see just this, this perfect juxtaposition of your, you know, your kind of like your analytical software engineering side, and then your creative side with, I want to build a business around this, yeah. you know, so no wonder you geek out about that. I mean, this is like oh, the, the perfect intersection. It's like the perfect storm of everything that, you know, that makes you tick, but um, I, it's interesting that is there, are there similar companies out there and it's, you know, I'm a, I'm a big shark tank fan. It seems yeah. like that either this was on there or something similar was on yeah. shark tank. Yeah. Mr. Wonderful invested in a company called felt F E L T. The difference is felt does laser printing of your actual writing. Right. So the thing, the issue with that 
is, I mean, it looks like you're writing. I mean, whatever you, you if you want to scribble, it is very hard to do on an iPhone. You have to have a tablet because you need a big, right? I tried it on an iPhone. It's insanely cumbersome mm-hmm. and you can't do it on the computer. But the bigger thing is um, it's not scalable. Like we make our bread and butter is dealing with businesses or mm-hmm. even even a wedding. If you're, if you're going to send out thank you notes, you're not going to sit there and scroll. Like what time savings is it to scroll with your finger versus scrolling with a pen? Minimal. I mean, you don't have to find a card and if you screw up, you can fix it and you don't have to attach a stamp, but you still have to sit there and scroll, scroll, scroll. With us, you upload a spreadsheet of notes and they all go out in the handwriting you choose. So we're a little bit different than them. Um, There have been some competitors that have popped up in our space. Most of them use a 3D printer as the writer because Mm -hmm. a 3D printer goes up, down, left, right. A pen needs to go up, down, left, right. What a 3D printer doesn't have is a paper feed. Mm -hmm. And so we spend years designing our own paper feed and we don't use a 3D printer as a writer. We use 3D printers to build our robots, but uh, there's just a lot of, you know, so so we're by far the largest in the space, but there are competitors. Um, Oh, you asked me how I went about starting this. So um, I went out and I bought um, these, two auto pens. I then determined from day one, taking off the success of my last company, I wanted to build a platform, an API for your geeky listeners. I wanted the whole company to be, um, I don't know the way, I wanted to be a platform, an API based company, not a website. Um, I wrote about this for Inc. Magazine. Um, you can Google my name and platform, not a, not a website and you'll, you'll find the article. But the difference is when you design to be a platform, you go API first, and then your website uses the API to work, your iPhone app uses the API to work. Um, Then you have all these cool things like Zapier. I don't know if you know Zapier. Um, Zapier is the greatest thing in the world. And then there's other things similar to Zapier, like Integramat and SyncSpider and Integrately and on and on and on. And it's very easy if you design API first, it's very easy to then create hooks into all those systems and to be everywhere your customer is. You wanna make your software business automatic so people don't even know they're spending money with you. I like to create plumbing companies. You know, nobody think they hook up, you know, just like once you hook up your toilet, you know, it runs, it's good, you don't think about it. You hook up handwritten to your CRM system or your sales system or your uh, e-commerce store, whatever, and it just automatically sends handwritten notes. So what I did, I did not design a website first. I designed an iPhone app first, knowing that we would never really use the iPhone app, but iPhone apps by design have a separation of API and user interface. And I wanted that API. And then after the design, the developers built the iPhone app, I said, great, turn that around, make it a website. The problem is if you first go make a website, don't make an API, um, especially years ago. Now, due to technology changes, it's probably a bit better. But years ago, it was very easy to intermingle the website code and the API code to the point where you didn't have a good platform. You Mm. just had a website. Right. Nowadays, the way people write websites, they use these front-end frameworks like React and Angular and all this stuff, where it's not as much a problem. But back then... It was, and I was very, uh, very adamant that I wanted to develop a platform. So, uh, yeah. um, so, so that's where we are today. And I really say, think that's another point of difference beyond just um, 
uh, having our own robot design that's really functional. I mean, I, I think the whole idea that you just described there is that, I mean, it's, it's a little bit like getting your tentacles into the, into the exactly. process and you, you've, you've integrated your system. You, you've moved in the house in essence, you're not, a, you're no longer just a neighbor that, you know, you, you share meals on occasion that you're actually, I'm living in the house and it's, exactly. you know, once you get that process together and it's working, I mean, sometimes it's out of sight, out of mind. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, I would say your retention rates went up astronomically when you but but you said you virtually did that from the beginning so yeah you, we, we knew from the beginning on. yeah yeah and um i wrote about this i i think i think it's an important thing to think about um it also makes maintaining your code easier and stuff like that um but but it was very it was very intentional with our business so tell me when when you talk to companies, when you first started talking to them about the idea, did they get it from day one, or did or was there like a sales learning curve that you had to walk companies through? Yeah, we've been very bad at outbound. Um, so there are people that got it and that came to us. It took years. You know, there's the BCG matrix, um, this consulting framework where you basically say, well. Uh, you know, everything's divided in four quadrants. And, and, and if you look closest to the axis, you have existing clients and existing products and selling an existing product to an existing client is easy. Like if you're a Staples client, I can easily send you, um, uh, sell you a pencil. And then on that axis of clients, you have new clients. So selling an existing product, a pencil to a new client isn't that big of a deal. People are familiar with pencils. The hardest thing to do is to sell a new client, a new product. Mm -hmm. And that's what we were doing because nobody's really doing this automated handwriting stuff. Yeah. So it took us, um, I mean, seven years in, we're finally a big, a relatively big company. We're still only about 30 employees, but, um, but, uh, but yeah, like it, it's taken us a while to, to figure out ways to get the word out. Um, but most of our clients come to us because they see the benefit of creating a perceived personal touch uh, in this digital age. And uh, it's accelerated due to COVID. Um, a lot of companies are really trying to reach out and, and, and appear caring and stuff like that. And then also people just, you know, um, they see it as the right thing to do, which is, I, I think a little bit of it is, um, people are returning to the core of humanity. And one of the key concepts I think of humanity is being grateful and grat you know, having gratitude. So as I, when I get, I get, you know, it looks like fake handwritten notes in the mail all the time. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that I do sometimes is I like will rub my hand on it to see is that, yeah. can I tell if this is laser printed or is this, or is this actually somebody actually wrote this out? I would think a, a real selling point to you is that, I mean, if, even if it's a robot writing it, there's still ink. I mean, yep. still, you know, you can rub it. It feels like that, you know, there was an impression in the, in the paper and, you know, that type of thing. So exactly. is that an advantage? Yes. P people call us and say, pass the smudge test. You know, people lick yeah. their finger and smudge the ink and it smudges. Um, that's happened. We worked with a major online travel agency that sent this out, sent out handwritten notes to their best clients. And they had people call in saying, I couldn't believe it. You sent me a real note. I smudged the ink. It smudged. Um, wow. You know, thank you for taking the time to think of me. Because the unique thing about a handwritten note is not the paper and the ink. The unique thing about a handwritten note is the time, the perceived time it took to write it. Mm 
Yeah. Because in this day and age of every, you know, beeping and like during this podcast, I thought I shut off everything. My cell phone beeped. I apologize about that. Um, the beeping and the constant interruption. Um, nobody has any time to sit down and write a note. Additionally, everything is automatable, right? Like emails. I can send you the most personal email that I didn't write. It's just fully automated. And people know that. But what they don't think is automatable are handwritten notes. Mm-hmm. And then things like um, there's some video email providers. There's like a company called Bonjoro where I send you a little video snippet of me talk. Hey, Kevin, thanks so much for being on your podcast. Wanted to send you this video. And you know, it's the same thing. It's that perception of he took time out. This is not automated. Um, he sent me a personal note. Um, that means the world to me. Nobody's doing that. Yep. I, uh, I have a, a theory that, that uh, we're, there's going to be kind of a return to the basics at some point in time. We're going to be so automated that we're going to, we're going to go back to the pen and paper era for, there's going to be a backlash mm-hmm. at some point in time. We're so digital. Do you, do you see that? I mean, at some point in time that people are just going to go, I, I'm done with my iPhone. I'm done with my laptop. I'm done. I, I want to get back. I mean, not completely, obviously, because we can't ever unplug completely. But do you see that there might be this, this return to, you know, pen and paper or a hand, you know, a little diary notebook, a little moleskin that you're carrying around yeah. or something like that type thing. And, and to me, that would almost be a, even a, an ad benefit to you. Yeah, no, I mean, a lot of people do. And, um, you know, that's kind of one of the reasons I started this. When we started the company, I called it uh, handwritten quality cards, your words in pen and ink. And quality cards was because I'd work with local letterpress when I was in Chicago, I'd work with letterpress card manufacturers. So really, really high-end quality note cards. Um, And then we got rid of that because our clients were businesses that just wanted to send a lot of them. But the whole idea was people like tactile, mm-hmm. you know, nothing's tactile anymore. Your record collection is on your yep. cell phone. Your photos of your family are on your cell phone. Like there's nothing physical anymore and people want to return to tactile. And so that's why, you know, my company automates it, but we're playing off that trend that return to tactile. Mm. We, we have the option on our website to include in, in, on our service to include gift cards. And when we were shopping around for our vendors, for gift cards for years, I'd have, we weren't big enough to really be taken uh, seriously by these vendors. Now we do a lot of business, but they kept saying, well, for a less, you know, for a company your size, you should really offer a gift card code. And I said, no, we need real, I mean, I'll, worst case, I'll print out gift cards with your gift card code on them, but I need real gift cards. This is a physical product with a physical gift card included. Oh. Um, and it's just really important to have that return to tactile. And, you know, why we have we have you know, five senses. Why would you give up one of them or two right, of them? I mean, right. you could smell the note too. I suppose I don't know. <laughs> that that's next. The the scratch yeah. and sniff handwritten note. That's so yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I'm gonna you you framed that much more eloquently than I did. But yeah, I, I like that that idea of, of this kind of going back to kind of a tactile, you know, um, I guess sense. You know, yeah. holding something in your hand, but I our time has is flying by and I'm, I'm taking up part of your work day here, but I, I really appreciate you taking the time today. Is there anything that we really haven't touched on that, that you just kind of like to, to wrap up, you know, leave our listeners with, you know, a, a kind of a lesson learned type thing. And um, 
I would say if you're starting a business, um, two pieces of advice. Number one is always get in over your head. That advice was actually told to me by Conan O'Brien 20 years ago. Um, I had the opportunity to meet him at a dinner um, at my college, and he said, always get in over your head. And you know, rarely do you hold on to advice for 20 years, but it's stuck. No. Um, and the reason always get in over your head is because if you don't get in over your head, you can't grow. You know, you're going to be in a safe spot. You're not going to be putting yourself out there to challenge yourself. And starting a business is a challenge and it's not a safe spot and you have to put yourself out there. So always get in over your head. The second bit of advice is hang in there. Um, starting any business isn't going to happen overnight, despite what you read in Wall Street Journal and you see on Silicon Valley, you know, the television show or whatever else, it just doesn't happen like that for the, you know, for 99.9999% of the people. It's overnight successes take years. <laughs> you know, exactly. uh, my first business was a seven year overnight success. This business, well, yeah, an eight year overnight. This year, this business isn't an overnight success yet. And it's been seven years. So, um, you know, it's, even if it is an overnight success, let's say you do start it and then tomorrow it's worth a gajillion dollars. How many years did it take leading up to that of choosing the wrong business idea and focusing on the wrong client and, and working in the wrong job in preparation? You know, all of that should be taken into account. Um, so hang in there a minimum of two years, um, if not much more. And you only, you only lose, quote unquote, lose when you give up. So if you can figure out a way to stay in and stick with it, when I say stick with it, I don't mean, you know, if for four years and you're, let's say you're calling on dog vets or something and they're saying, this is stupid. Why do I need a, a, a cat scratch pole? I'm a dog vet. You know, <laughs> you, you have to take your product and adjust it, yep. you know, sell it to cat vets or whatever, <laughs> or change it from my cat scratch pole to something else. But, but you can adjust and refine your product until you find a, you know, a market for it. So um, listen to what people are saying, but also stand by your guns and, and have some confidence that it's, it's not gonna be an overnight success. It's gonna take years to get there. I, I love the way you wrap this up. And, and um, I mean, these, these kind of, you gave us a, a bonus one too. So I wrote down three, one, always get in over your head. Uh, the second one is just hang in there. And I wrote at the end, okay, it will certainly get better. And then- yes. So, Third is you only lose when you give up. But I mean, I want to add a fourth one there too, that you can't overcome stupid with perseverance. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know that's I mean? true. Yeah, <laughs> the, you have to. Product market fit's not there. <laughs> yeah, you, you need to be able, you, you can't be so uh, stiff, right? Like you need to be able to stand by your guns and the fact that I'm going to keep building this business, but you okay, the product needs refinement or the target market needs refinement or the, the marketing message needs refined. You know, you're constantly adjusting, pulling all those levers, um, but, you know, have some confidence in yourself that this is a journey you want to go on. Man, that's a great way to wrap up today, David. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time today and sharing your story with our, our listeners. And uh, it's, it's been a true pleasure to, to meet you and to, to hear, you know, just I love the way that you just kind of shared so freely and, and just lessons learned and things that are so applicable, just not specifically to your, your case, but more generically, universally, these are, these are applicable in business in general, and certainly will benefit our, our listeners that are, that are listening to this and, and we'll actually put it into, you know, to apply these lessons learned, but just thank you for taking time and just really helping all boats rise in a rising tide. David, have a great weekend. Thanks, Kevin. 
Another episode in the books. We hope you heard some great takeaways. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review on iTunes and YouTube. As always, thanks for listening to Rising Tide.